What's up, everybody? You got Evan Knowles and Logan Jones here at the Mill Tech Podcast. It's a good time to buy some stocks right now. It is. Market's way down. Yeah. This is an opportunity. Yeah. You watching anybody in specifically? Uh, I've I've been wanting to get to diversify my portfolio a little bit. I'm big in on the tech, mostly because of you, honestly. You've given me some cool picks that I've looked into. I'll let you get into that part of it. Um, but I've been, I bought an ETF in the energy sector just because of the way oil's been reacting lately. And then also bought a... Shoot, what's the word I'm looking for? The one that traces the index. Market. Yeah, I bought an index fund that just tracks the S and P 500. Pretty boring stuff, but with the market down like this, I could I could see that going up pretty quickly once the market recovers. Yeah, I think I've been buying I've been buying more what I what I have. So, yeah. um, Yext obviously mm-hmm. uh, that's an obvious <laughs> one for me. Yeah, uh, Livongo is one I really like. So they're building what's called applied health signals, which combines like all of your wearables along with some of their proprietary technology puts all of those data points into their algorithms and their artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. basically feeds you back um, feedback that you can use to improve your health. And then they have like telehealth doctors connected to this artificial intelligence, which so is like this whole ecosystem of health. Um, really cool company. Uh, and then the Square of South America uh, called Stone Co. So Berkshire Hathaway has a big portion of them nice uh ipo last year the year before um growing pretty steadily but i mean everybody's getting knocked back a lot so yeah. uh, perfect time to buy some good, before good before we get into talking about this episode that we just recorded do you want to talk a little bit about who's picked up some of your stock picks in the past and why our, our listeners should pay attention sure um so my biggest pick and the one i've been following for about two years now um it's called yeah because i mentioned it earlier um, I have been talking about them on Twitter and I've written articles about them. And I've just been digging deep, you know, into that company because I think they're building, you know, the future of, um, a big portion of the future of the internet. So they're building a technology that's called search experience cloud or digital knowledge management. Mm-hmm. So whenever you ask Alexa a question like how many calories are in my Big Mac, the answer is going to be provided by Yext, not Alexa or not Google. So McDonald's puts those answers into Yext, and then Yext pushes those out into the world. Nice. So no matter where a consumer asks a question about you know, McDonald's, they're going to get an answer that's correct, and, and McDonald's put that answer there. Yeah, I was um, mostly wanting the answer about how the Motley Fool guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here. Yeah, so uh, Motley Fool is one of the better-known uh, blogs, one of the better-known resources in the financial space for innovation, um, and one of their head innovative uh, reporters saw my article, gave me a shout out, and then that's his stock of the year. Yeah, I think um, that's pretty cool. So, so yeah, yeah I'm excited. Give yourself about a pat it. on the back. For yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, yeah right. he credited me for finding that, which is cool. Yeah. So who do we who do we just get down interview? Uh, so we talked with John Wilmoth. Uh, John, I knew him from E Town. Um, so John's from E Town. Uh, he knew my dad, and his dad was actually the mayor of E Town. Um, so I hit him up on LinkedIn, said, hey, let's get some dinner. We've got these common connections. I'm in the tech space. He's a venture capitalist in Louisville. I think he actually has the biggest fund in Kentucky. He just closed the fund of $22 million. Um, and he's got an amazing background. So early in investment banking in his career, then um, helped build and scale a company called Nextel. I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with Nextel, cell phone provider, or self-service provider, um, merged with Sprint for billions and billions of dollars. And he got there when it was worth, when they only had a few million dollars of revenue and they had 
billions and billions in dollar revenue when they when they merged. So he was a big part of that. Um, and then he left there and came back to Kentucky and started Poplar Ventures. So he's been helping fund companies in this area uh, for several years now um, and has had a lot of success. So we're going to walk through with him uh, that story of Nextel, walk through the venture capital space, some of uh, his most successful investments and why they're successful. And then for those of you that you know are starting a company, want to learn more about venture capital, want to learn more about venture finance, this is an awesome episode. Uh, this is probably one of the best guys in Kentucky to talk on this subject. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just going to be great for anybody that wants to learn about that side of the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think he had some some uh, different opinions than what we're used to in terms of capital. That's true. So I think, yeah, I think it'll be really interesting for, for our listeners to not only hear what he has to say about capital in Kentucky, but why he thinks that. Yeah. So I think that was one of the cooler takeaways for me, just because yeah. it was so counter to what we're used to hearing. Yeah, I mean, most of our guests, when we ask them, you know, what can improve in Kentucky, they say we need more angel funds or seed capital. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he has a different opinion on that, um, and he's going to talk about it. So, yeah, well, let's go ahead and get into it then. Let's do it. going on everybody you got evan knowles here with logan jones we're sitting in story louisville with john wilmoth and this is gonna be an awesome episode we're really looking forward to this one uh it might be a longer one but that's fine uh there's a lot to talk about here with john he's got an awesome story a lot of awesome experience we want to get into all of that um so let's just start with like the crazy thing that happened today and it's been happening for a while uh yeah. last few weeks which is the market but today was like Really big, really big fall. Uh, you had some commentary, uh, but you know me personally, being so young, uh, obviously opportunity, opportunity for everybody. Probably, how do you how do you look at something like this, an event like this? Yeah, so I've been around a little while, so I've seen probably. I think I was trying to figure out this probably the fourth or fifth time that this type of event has occurred in, mm-hmm. in the public markets. So if I go all the way back to the 1987 crash, the dot com crash the Great Recession, now this, and even if I go even further back, you go back to the late 70s when I was a teenager and you had stagflation where interest rates were at 20% and inflation was through the roof, yeah. right? So, and, and you had oil, you had gas shortages where people were standing in line at the gas yeah, station trying, to, trying yeah. to get gas. So, yeah. um, you know, the reality is that these things occur and I think that... Um, the one thing that, from my perspective, is they all are a little bit different. They're never quite the same, and it's all. And it typically, you know, there's some type of exogenous shock that occurs. In this case, the coronavirus is what's kind of triggering all of this uh, mayhem right now. Uh, and then, obviously, you add the oil. Uh, you know, the the oil price is dropping dramatically today. So there's a lot of things going on in the market. The good news, I think, right now, and historically, if you look back the market recovers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The market is not going to just continue to go down forever. So you have to have the ability to be patient and and not panic and not, you know, you know, try to implement some type of knee-jerk reaction to what's going on in the marketplace. Um, and I do think that 
Uh, the good news again in this particular case, the economy is actually in a pretty good position going into this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we don't have, you know, if you go back to the, the 2008 time frame and the Great Recession, they, we, we had way too much debt across the board. Um, and again, I'm not saying there won't be other things that are going to pop here, but there probably will be a few other things that are going to, there's going to be some dislocation yeah. in the market where things are going to occur that we don't, you know, right now we don't know about. Um, but in general, I think the economy is in a much better position than it was in 08. Um, and even maybe in some of those other markets, the dot-com was just, the uh, asset prices were just dramatically inflated. Yeah. Right. So I don't, I don't look at these as situations where you have to panic. I actually view it as, you know, when you have adversity, there's opportunity. Mm-hmm. There always is. So if you can, you know, from my perspective, you want to be, try to position yourself and be, be ready to take advantage of those, those opportunities when they come. Yeah. You Absolutely. mentioned, you mentioned that some things that have never happened before are happening right now. What were some of those things that you've noticed that are kind of alarming, but maybe it's just the first time it's happened and that's, the, it stays at that. Well, I've never seen a, um, I've never seen the 10 year treasury or the treasuries in general at mm-hmm. the rates that they're at right now. Yeah. So we're at, um, below 50 basis points on the 10 year treasury. And so when you think about, when you think of, you know, the one, if there is one risk, I think right now, from my perspective, and again, I'm not a complete expert on the economy and the, and the market, but the rates are so low historically in order to be able to deal with some of these shocks, you have, um, the, the fed can, it can interject, right? There's, there's a combination of fiscal policy or monetary policy. The Fed on the monetary side typically can reduce interest rates. They can do other things to increase the liquidity in the marketplace to make sure that the markets are functioning. Mm-hmm. Um, but when the rates are that low, and honestly, if you look in Europe right now, I think in the UK, the rates are actually negative, which is kind of a mm-hmm. bizarre concept yeah. to even think about. But there, <laughs> you, you've, there, there are things going on here that are kind of like, okay, what do we do from a monetary policy perspective, which now leads you back to fiscal policy needs to you know, get involved mm-hmm. to make sure that things are stable. Um, and, and all you're really looking for, you're not really trying to prop it up. You're just trying to stabilize so that they, that the markets can kind of normalize, get to a point where they've kind of figured out, okay, based on all everything I see, here's, where, here's a level that we can land on, and then you can start building back from there. Yeah. Well, a lot of wisdom there, and you've acquired that over – you know, a really amazing career. So let's just like, let's jump into some of your early career. Jump into, uh, first off, let's start in your personal background. Where are you from? Yeah. Education growing up, and then we'll get into some of your professional career. Yeah. So I grew up in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. That's how um, we, uh, that's how we connected. Which is a good, it's a, it's a great town. Great town to be raised in. Family values, community. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I know Evan because I, I know his father. Uh, very well. His yeah. father was a few years ahead of me in high school and a uh, phenomenal basketball player. He's one of those guys that I, that I idolized when I was growing up because he was such a good athlete. Uh, but grew up in E-Town, had an opportunity to uh, go to Amherst College up in Massachusetts, which was a fantastic experience. Um, major Nikon. Um, and when I graduated college, I knew that I wanted to do some business-oriented um, um profession, yeah. uh, which is why I picked econ, even though, you know, going, Amherst was a liberal arts school, so I really didn't have a lot of choice. There was no business degree. There were none of that. So it was basically economics or, or something else. 
Um, and when I graduated, um, I had an opportunity to go work at First Chicago uh, in Chicago at the time and work in a program where I was allowed to go around the bank every six months to a different part of the bank. I was, mm. uh, and they paid for my business school. So I went, there, went to the University of Chicago business school at night, uh, full-time, you know, full-time job and at business school at night right out of undergrad. And I was, quite frankly, when I graduated uh, the University of Chicago Business School, I was ready to be done with school. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> I'd had enough lot. of that. Um, but, you know, tremendous experience in terms of being able to kind of early in my career just learn a little bit about what goes on in the economy, banking, mm -hmm. you know, in general, uh, and obviously get a very good education at the University of Chicago. So um, that was a, you know, that was a great first you know, starting point for me. When we got coffee, you had mentioned that you had insights into some really unique and big deals at the time, you know, the way that they were structuring those deals. Um, you had mentioned uh, RJR Nabisco. Was that one of them? So talk about why that was unique and why that was such good experience and how that, you know, kind of leads into some other parts of your story. Yeah. So I, uh, when I was uh, at First Chicago, again, moving around different parts of the bank, I pretty quickly gravitated toward what I would call equity, the yeah. equity side. So I was working in an early stage venture group, a fund to funds group that was doing investing in venture capital funds. Uh, I worked in a mezzanine capital group, which was a combination of mezzanine, you know, a subordinated debt and equity transactions. Uh, and then the last group I worked in there was what at the time was called First Chicago Equity. It's now a company called Madison Dearborn Partners, which is one of the larger private equity groups in the country. Uh, and when I was working in that particular group, uh, this is in the late 80s, so probably in the 1980, 88, 89 time frame. Um, again, I'm going to act, act like an old man on this, this whole, this whole uh, podcast. But um, if you go back to that time frame, there was, a, there was a wave of leverage buyouts. At that point in time, a lot of companies... Um, you know, well-known companies, very successful companies. You had a lot of financial um, companies or private equity companies start to try to buy those companies out. Uh, and you would do it with a combination of debt and equity, and they would lever up the balance sheet, bring in some equity, buy the company, and then obviously grow those businesses, pay down the debt, and then that's how you make a return on your equity. So um, there was a series of LBOs going on at the time, leverage buyouts, and one of the one of the biggest deals, and, and if you've never watched uh, Barbarians at the Gate, okay, so there's a, it was a book that was written about this particular deal. So this was mm -hmm. KKR, which is Col Colbert, Kravis, Roberts, which was one of the biggest private equity groups, buying RJR Nabisco. RJR Nabisco, you know, RJ, uh, the RJR part was the tobacco, the Nabisco obviously is the food part, but it was a big conglomerate, big you know, consumer goods company at the time. And KKR came along and, and bought it for $25 billion. So when I was, and so my connection to that, I didn't work for KKR, but I was working for, um, I was working for, uh, for Chicago Equity. They were, uh, they had a relationship with KKR. And because of the size of the deal, they literally had to go around and pull in other equity players to participate, to be able to have enough capital to be able to do the deal for Chicago equity ended up participating in that. And I had the opportunity to be, to write the investment memo for that deal. 
So right in the middle of, you know, what was, you definitely, you really need to go back and watch the movie. It's okay. an HBO movie, Barbarians at the Gate. It's it's fascinating. Yeah. And it was fascinating at the time, what was going on. Didn't turn out to be a very good deal. But why was tobacco and consumer food together in the first place? Uh, it's a good question. I guess, you know, just, you know, go to market. If you think about those companies, they're selling into, they're yeah. selling through stores, you know, yeah. grocery, mm-hmm. grocery chains, et cetera. So they kind of, they had kind of merged over a period of time. Yeah. Got it. And so, so that experience, getting that insight into those kind of mergers and those structures of deals then perfectly leads into what you did next when you left there. Um, and we're going to, we're going to spend some time on this part of the story. Um, cause I think everybody, majority of people will probably be familiar with Nextel, you know, and Sprint. So you were at Nextel super early and you were a big part of growing that into what it became eventually when it merged. So Let's dig into that and we'll spend some time on this because it's just a really crazy story. So start wherever you think it's best to start on that that part of your journey. Yeah. Well, I start. I guess I'll start for Chicago because that's where I got to know the company. Mm-hmm. So the first Chicago equity group that I was in, they had made an investment in a little company called Fleet Call, which became Nextel. Okay. Uh, a few years later, we changed our name. But they had made an investment to grow, to basically buy Spectrum uh, FCC licenses, uh, and to kind of aggregate those li- that license position and become effectively the third cellular network. So let me, let me, and, and the reason I got connected with them is because I was working at first Chicago. They had made the investment. I got to know the founders and eventually they said, Hey, we need some help doing these acquisitions. We're buying these little companies. Um, you know, would you want to come on and do that? So that's kind of how I got there. But if, let me back up and explain what Nextel was, you know, really how it was formed. Yeah. So the founder, there were, there were a couple of co-founders, but the, the principal founder, a gentleman by the name of Morgan O'Brien, a fantastic guy, um, FCC lawyer. And he understood the, at the time, you've got to go back again, I'm going to be old man here, uh, late 80s cell phones really didn't exist. Yeah. Right. So they were just coming onto the scene the FCC had allocated two licenses in each market around the country, kind of an incumbent telco got one and then an independent provider got the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they said, go to market, you know, be, you know, offer cellular service, phone service. And so those companies went down that path right next to those two pieces of spectrum was another group, another piece of spectrum that was called was allocated for specialized mobile radio and basically fleet dispatch. And real quick, just for those that maybe not understand the concept of the spectrum in the shortest way you possibly can describe what that, what that means. Well, spectrum means, I mean, how, I mean, if you, if you have this phone, yeah. right, the signal that goes from this phone to the tower to be able to give you your data and be able to make your phone call, that goes over a, a piece of spectrum, radio spectrum, yeah. right? And in this particular case, this spectrum was in the 800 megahertz range, and that's what cell companies use to be able to deliver that information. Right. So yeah. the spectrum is basically the, the raw material, right? Okay. If you don't have it, you can't deliver the service. Yeah. Um, and so Fleet Call at the time, Nextel, had this, this idea, this Morgan had the idea he looked at the spectrum that the cellular carriers have, and he looked at the, the spectrum that the specialized mobile radio 
carriers had, and they were divvied up into small pieces. And he said, this trades at a fraction of the cost of these licenses. What if we pulled all those back together and created effectively the third cellular license? Yeah. And so buy it at a discount, pull it all back together, go to the FCC, change the rules slightly to compete with those other guys. And then now all of a sudden you've turned something that was worth a fraction, you know, a penny into something that's worth a dollar. You said that was, that's arbitrage. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that was the original pure arbitrage. Now, the once you get to that position, and I would say we did hundreds of acquisitions over a three or four year period. And it was your job to uh, basically yeah, that do was, the Yeah, that was my primary job coming in was to basically go do those acquisitions. And I was yeah. involved with literally hundreds of transactions and oh. negotiating deals. And keep in mind, I'm, I was... 25 when I joined. So crazy. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not overly experienced necessarily, yeah. but it was, you know, we had a, we had a process, we understood what we were doing and it, it was fantastic experience, obviously to be able to go do that. What's the pitch to the FCC there? Um, I mean, is the pitch that this spectrum, you know, you said it was like basically for dispatch. What do you tell the FCC to get them to basically make make this is not an exception, but to change the rule. Like, what? Well, the rule that we needed to change is that, that at the time that spectrum was for two way radio dispatch. Yeah. And all we were really asking them to do was to change the rule to allow us to do cellular as well. Okay. And so it wasn't as if we were asking for a dramatic change, but until we got that approval to do that, we're kind of stuck in this mode. We were going to offer two way radio dispatch. And obviously we knew that wasn't the future. We knew we needed to do that. So the push to talk. Yes, yeah. I was about and, to say, that's yeah. what I remember. And that is, you know, and that's kind of the growth part of kind of how Nextel ended up being as successful as it was. good marketing. Well, if I remember right. If you think about it, um, so we got the FCC to change the rules. And if you think about it, the FCC, we were pro-competitive. Our pitch was, look, guys, there's two cellular licenses. Why can't you have a third? We'll compete. That's good, right? That's a good thing to, to have more competition. Good yeah, absolutely. So... We were able to convince the FCC to do that. The growth of the company really came in the 90s. And, and what happened was we, you know, Motorola actually owned a bunch of the licenses. They had been a longtime leader in the uh, specialized mobile radio market. They were, you know, provided both the uh, tele, telecom equipment that, you know, at the network la layer as well as the actual devices. So they were the dominant player in specialized mobile radio. They owned a bunch of the licenses. We ended up buying all of their licenses. And as part of that deal, we effectively said to them, okay, we'll use your technology. They developed a new technology that allowed us to do combination of, you know, paging, <laughs> which is an old thing that existed. I think that's on your hip. Yeah, the pager and on your <laughs> hip. That existed in the old days. The combination of a pager, a two-way radio, a cell phone at the time. And so putting all those capabilities together. So Motorola developed the technology. We went to market. And what we realized is, and I think we've, this happened in Atlanta. So in Atlanta, they started taking our, our solution. The construction industry basically realized that they could, and we initially the two-way radio was just internal. Mm -hmm. So like if you were in a company, you could communicate within your own company. And then we said, well, why can't we open that up to any, anybody in the market? And so we eventually said, 
you can communicate to your company, but you can also communicate to that company. Okay. And then eventually we said, well, guess what? You're in Atlanta. Why don't you want, don't you want to talk to the guys out in California? We literally had a nationwide push to talk. You could be right here in Louisville, push that button and you could get somebody in California instantly. So I would argue that it was, it is effectively what kind of, you think about text messaging today. It was yeah. a voice, it was a voice yeah. text messaging functionality that was instantaneous. That's an interesting And it was very, it was, it was conducive to those things where the mark, the, the customer needed instantaneous communication. So construction was kind of the yeah. beachhead. And what happened was that the general contractors, when they realized they could communicate with all of their subcontractors, they basically said, guess what, guys, you're using this technology because I want to be able to talk to you guys and coordinate. Wow. And so you get that snowball network effect. And that basically, once we realized that that was occurring, we obviously piggybacked that across the country. And then we went into other verticals and started mm-hmm. trying to do similar things. And that allowed us basically to carve out a niche in the market. It wasn't just basic cell phone, right? Yep. You know, if you think of this, the cell, what, what does a cell phone company compete on? Like hardware or the... Well, what do you compete on if you're a cell if you're if you're a cell phone provider, the the service, yeah, the network, yeah, you compete on coverage, coverage, a yeah. better network, maybe better devices, mm-hmm. right, yeah, but that's it, right, yeah. We had something else. We had a unique functionality that they really couldn't duplicate that mm. served a particular market. And, and look, we went after businesses. Yeah, that's we, what's we weren't going after consumers. Yeah. We were going after businesses. And that allowed us to grow from when I started with Nextel in late 89, we probably had, I don't know, I'm going to say somewhere south of 10 million in revenue because we were starting to buy companies that had real revenue. Yeah. And we, when we merged with Sprint in 2005, we had about 15 billion in revenue. Wow. So take it from that to that. Now, what I'll tell you about that whole experience Real, you know, one thing personally, and then one thing as far as the company's concerned. First, on the company side, one of the, one of the biggest lessons out of Nextel, from my perspective, was that you, a company, can make a lot of mistakes and can recover from those mistakes if you have a market that's going up and to the right. Oh, I like this. Yeah, I like this part of the conversation we had. It was good. Yeah. So you, you know, which is which influences how I think about investing. Uh huh. It gives you degrees of freedom. Yeah. So what I what do I want to be in a market that's stagnant or do I want to be in one that's growing and one that's growing and particularly if it's growing at outsized pace at an outsized pace, that market. You can you can bumble along. You're still going to be able to survive and probably even prosper because people recognize the growth and they're yeah. going to be willing to continue to support you, continue to finance that business. So that was a that was a big key lesson for me from Nextel uh, at a, at a very at so a very macro. Some current level. examples might be you know remote works growing fast. So Slack, you know Zoom, you know those are some that are catching this larger trend. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Those are two Absolutely. examples. Absolutely. That's a very good example. Yeah. Right. So you find find markets like that, and you don't even have to be the always have to be the leader. Mm-hmm. You can be a fast follower. Going to pull you. 
Yeah. yeah. Or you can just provide an answer. You can provide a piece of the solution. Yeah. You don't even have to be, again, you don't even have to be the one right on, out on the bleeding edge. You can be a fast follower with a part of the solution and you just get caught up in the wave. Mm -hmm. And so I love markets like that and I love businesses like that. And so if you can find those, you know, yeah. I definitely want to do that. From a personal perspective, um, Nextel, um, I, had, I had tremendous opportunity. So I, I obviously early on, I was doing a lot of the acquisition work. Later in my career, I was doing, I was kind of the guy that got the, uh, in the corporate development group that got the complex transactions. So we created a company called Nextel Partners, which was really just to get to the next markets that we weren't getting to, but it was a literally a billion dollar startup. So I had to kind of put that together along with the management team that was gonna go run it. Um, you know, we sold our tower assets for $650 million. We, you know, we did all kinds of other transactions, raised a ton of money, obviously, to be able to you know, grow the business. So. I had a lot of good experience later in my career, and this is kind of relevant to how I got to what I'm doing today. Um, keep in mind, I had learned a little bit about venture capital, private equity early at First Chicago. At Nextel, I became kind of also the individual inside the company that managed our private equity investments. We didn't have a dedicated group that was doing investing, but we did have, we were opportunistic. So if we identified a technology or a company in, our, in the wireless industry that we thought was interesting, might give us some type of differenti differentiation down the road, we would make an investment in that company. Mm -hmm. I think we put in about 50 million in about seven companies. Uh, again, mostly technology-related uh, type of companies. But I was, the, I was the person inside Nextel that was responsible for managing those investments. So I learned the you know, I got an opportunity to see the private equity venture capital space at First Chicago. I got to see the corporate venture space at Nextel. And that ultimately, when, when I decided to leave Nextel after we merged with Sprint, um, that's kind of what led me down that path. Yeah. So next, you had that awesome experience. You probably made a good amount of money and then you had, you know, this opportunity to go into venture capital and you started your career. You came back to Lexington or to Louisville, sorry. And I like I'd like to ask a question. Why did you come back when you had this experience everywhere? You were traveling. You had all these big markets. You probably had a lot of great connections. Uh, you know, we always like to hear about. We call it a boomerang. You leave and come back. You leave and get amazing experience. And you bring that experience to Kentucky and you mm -hmm. help grow. You know the state. So talk about why you came back. Why do you think I came back? Family, the amazing uh, scenery around here, <laughs> pace of life. Woman. Woman, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. see, I didn't know. So, so my high school sweetheart came back to get married. Okay. And, you know, she had a couple of kids, one of which yes, you know. I know, Davis, yes. Um, and um, I didn't want to at the time. It was, you know, I, we had just merged with uh, kind of all this timing. You know, some, sometimes things just happen at the right time. Yeah. Um, we had, you know, Karen, my wife, we had been, uh, you know, always stayed in touch with each other. Um, you know, we always had that interest in each other. And I think that what ended up happening is right about the time that we merged or we merged with Sprint and I could see, you could see the train wreck coming with that. Right. So here's a big telco, traditional telco company buying a upstart, aggressive you know, entrepreneurial style company, yeah. Yeah. Uh, even though it was pretty big at the time, 
you could see that train wreck coming. Mm -hmm. And so I said, look, I'll hang around for a little while, but I want to go. I'm, yeah. It's time. I've been there 17 years. It's time for me to do something different. Literally right at that time frame, you know, Karen and I are, you know, having this conversation about possibly getting married. So yeah. that was the timing was perfect. I literally went from, um, I left the day I left either that day or that week we got engaged. Um, within six months I had bought a house, gotten married and moved to Kentucky. Nice. So big shift, That's a lot, yeah. big, yeah. big shift, but I would, I, I'm, you know, it's been a, you know, fantastic, you know, move for me. Yeah. Right. I mean, obviously got the love of my life, Yes. And and then being back in Kentucky where I grew up, um, it, that means a lot to me. And yeah. I'm not going anywhere. This is where this is where I live. This is where I'm going to be. Um, but that was um, that's why I came back. I'm going to have to start guessing that more because Eric with, uh, <laughs> with uh, Omni Life that was his that was his reason to come back. The women the women bring people yeah. back. All right. Well, we've got we've got beautiful guest next time. We've got beautiful women in Kentucky. Fast horses, yeah. beautiful women. That's what brings people back. <laughs> yeah, that is yeah. true. Uh, so let's get into Papa Ventures then. Or actually, you had a stint before that. Yeah. At, so, I, so I. So when I came back, uh, you know, I, I I had the idea that I wanted to invest, right? So I had some of my own capital, and I wanted to invest in companies. And I think the the transition for me. I'm not going to say it was easy. I'll be mm -hmm. honest with you, because and I'll, you know, you're you're working in a big corporate you got job. A routine. You've mm -hmm. got the. You've got access to whatever you need access mm -hmm. to. You're used to dealing with, you know, executives at Samsung and Qualcomm, and you know, go down the go down the list, and now all of a sudden you're nothing in Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> so you're basically back to square one yeah. in a lot of respects. So that was a big transition. But I knew that I wanted to do investing. And if you think about this time frame, so this is 06, 07-ish time frame. And there was a shift going on at the time from on-premise software to cloud-based wow. recurring revenue software. And obviously, the wireless industry is a subscription-based revenue model. Mm -hmm where you have to pay attention to cost of acquisition, you have to pay attention to churn, you you know, so all of those metrics around a recurring revenue business model. And then I see software starting to move in that direction. I'm like, I recognize that. What year was this again? Kind of 06, 07 okay. timeframe. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I recognize that. I like that. I understand that. So let's see if we can, it, it wasn't like a, it, honestly, it wasn't a conscious I'm going to go invest in software technology. It was more of it found me. It yeah. was like it was a natural transition for me to go to that. And so I started investing individually, a you know, a couple of different companies. Um, I worked with Chrysalis Ventures uh, here in town uh, for a decade as a venture partner, you know, first part time, then full time, led a couple of investments for them and then went back part time. And now, obviously, I'm out of there and, and, and running Poplar Ventures, but good experience there. Great, great folks over there and very capable. Um, so a lot of good experience. But, but I started, you know, gravitating very clearly toward the software technology companies. And the one 
in particular here locally that I invested in and went on the board was Zermatt. Yeah, this is another story that we want to spend some time on because yeah, we awesome story. But uh, when we were talking about this yesterday, uh, you had mentioned that and I didn't know about it. So uh, huge, you know, huge huge exit right here in Louisville, um, and I didn't know about it. And we're sitting here doing middle tech. It didn't happen too long ago, <laughs> and so that's part of this story we're about to tell and like why this is important um, with this particular company. Um, but I'll, like, let's tell this story because yeah, yeah. So so um, there's probably a lot of good stories. I, I came along in probably '08 time frame is when I I think I first made my investment. And I got connected, you know. Like one thing I'll tell folks is the the network is the most important thing that you have because you never know when something is going to pop out of that network, Mm -hmm. right? So the business relationships you develop, the people that you meet along the way, they're all very important. You may not, you may not think they're important at the time, but you maintain those relationships because you never know when they're going to pop up. So what ended up happening is um, a connection in Elizabethtown, who was on the board at Zermatt at the time knew that I, you know, knew I was back in town and said, Hey, you ought to take a look at this company. And so I got, you know, went over and talked to the management team and that led to ultimately them asking me to join the board. And I said, well, if you want me to join the board, then, then I would like to make an investment. And so at the time the company was, it had been basically funded. This company had been funded. It was founded, I think in 99, it was funded pretty much passing the hat. So they literally had, I don't know, 200 investors, small investors, mom and pop. And so at the time there were, but there were occasionally people would say, Hey, I'm ready to sell. I want to, you know, I want to, you know, I bought in earlier. I want to exit now. Mm -hmm. So there's opportunities to buy. So that's how we ended up investing. That's how I ended up investing in the company and went on the board. So what Zermed what Zermed does, or you know, and they're now, it's now a company called Waystar after a, after a couple of transactions. But what they basically did was they helped providers, healthcare providers, get paid. It was a claims processing, um, you know, pro, a, a solution that allowed those providers to submit claims, you know, where they knew that they were going to go through that where they could bill the customer appropriately, they could collect uh, co-pays cor- correctly. So it was really everything around getting paid. And they just drove um, tremendous efficiency in that process. Mm-hmm. And that's what Zermed did. It was not, it's, it's not brain Nothing surgery. too flashy. It's not brain surgery. Yeah. It, you know, it, it literally, it's not brain surgery uh, <laughs> in the healthcare space, but it, it was a business process and at the time was very much needed. And they had kind of grown up at serving small doctor offices. And eventually we went up market and, and, and started going after larger hospitals and bigger healthcare entities. But that company grew. I think when I first invested, it was about 20 million in revenue. It was already cash flow positive. And when we exited, we ended up Bain Capital came along in 2017 and, uh, they had already made an investment in a company called Navicure, which was a competitor of ours. And so Bain came along and said, hey, I want to put these two companies together. And we ended up selling the business. We, we'd grown it from $20 million to $160 million and in revenue and sold it for $750 million. Yeah. So, and, and I, the, the one thing I would say is that 
um, and I mentioned this to you, the thing that, that, that was very shocking to me to a large degree is there was literally, not, not literally, virtually no press. Yeah, this is what I wanted on, to on that on. on that transaction. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's so there, there was an announcement, <clears throat> right? But there was, there was no, you would think that there would be some follow-up and people would say, well, how did that happen? Yeah. Let's, let's hear that story. Let's understand how this company grew from nothing over a period of 20 years into a $750 million exit yeah. right here in, in Louisville, Kentucky. Born, <laughs> born yeah. and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. With investors so in small crazy. town, Elizabethtown. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, got, yeah. you got all these little investors. So <laughs> how does that happen? And yeah. let's tell that story. That's a pretty good, successful story. Yeah. And so I, I, I'm still, it still boggles my mind, but it yeah. is what it is, right? I mean, that's part of what we, you know, we'll talk about, we can talk more about Kentucky and, and Louisville and so forth and from an investing standpoint, but that was a phenomenal transaction, a great team. Um, you know, the one, you know, the, the other wonderful benefit from my perspective out of that whole thing, other than working with the management team and the board I got a chance to meet Doug Leone from Sequoia, mm -hmm. who oh, wow. Sequoia ended up investing in the company in, you know, a few years after I got in. And they, you know, Doug came on the board, which was like, you know, you got the guy that basically is one of the top <laughs> guys at Sequoia, yeah. one of the most successful venture capital firms in, in the world. Uh, and all of a sudden he's on your board in Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah. So how does that happen? Yeah. I don't know. They found us. They found us. Actually, I'll tell you a good story. They... When he came in to pitch the company and say, "Hey, you know, we want to invest in we want to invest in the company," um, he came in and all he really did he had like two slides, one maybe one slide, and that slide was basically just the logos of all the com <laughs> all the companies that the Sequoia had invested in, most of which everybody knows. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So just that, walk in with the cloud. That that's yeah. the pitch, right? Yeah. So, but I would say this, I, um, Doug is, uh, you know, I, you learn something from everybody as you go along in your career, and I think the biggest thing I learned from Doug, he's 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 a he is a uh, he's a lot of fun. Uh, he's very direct in terms of how he communicates. Mm -hmm. um, he's usually right, um, not always, but he's usually right. Yeah. And what I really loved about him is that he's capable as an investor. Obviously, he sees a lot of things, but he's he's capable as an investor to be able to adjust his thinking about a about an, a a company or an investment based yeah. upon what he sees. In other words, so a lot of people kind of get a view of, hey, this is, I like this company, this is what I see, but then the maybe the metrics of the business are kind of evolves in a way that doesn't fit with that thesis and people can't adjust. They have this mindset that this is what that company is supposed to be doing as opposed to what is the market saying? Yeah. How, is, mm -hmm. how is this company fitting in with the market and how do you adjust to that? So he's really, really good. I, I mean that, that, that's the one thing, big takeaway for, from my perspective is really listening to kind of how the market is reacting to that company and being willing to adjust mm -hmm. and being willing to say, hey, we got to do something different than what we're doing.
Does he ever come back this way and hang out in Kentucky? And is he involved at all, still in the area? I don't. I don't think hanging out in Kentucky is probably <laughs> Maybe high for the his derby. List. Hey, <laughs> the derby. You got the derby. You got all kinds. Of, you got some. Re- you got some good reasons to come back. Yeah. So, well, you, he's. Uh, he's. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure. If I, you know, invited him back, yeah, he probably wouldn't come. But, <laughs> but um, see him. I go out there to see him occasionally. Yeah. You yeah. mentioned. You mentioned kind of learning something from everyone you meet along the way. And it sounds like your experience was a great teacher for you as well. But was there ever kind of a consistent mentor or network of mentors throughout your life that kind of guided you through this process? Because, I mean, it sounds like you were really young, stepping into a lot of these really big roles and really high-pressure situations. Um, I don't know if I, I wouldn't say a consistent mentor, but just mm-hmm. folks along the way. So the first guy that I worked for at Nextel went on to become the governor of Delaware, a <laughs> um, very good friend of mine. Yeah. Um, Morgan O'Brien, Brian McCauley, the original founders of Nextel were great, were great folks. Um, I've had, um, you know, there's plenty, plenty of other folks that I would say, um, would fit the bill in terms of being mentors or folks that have been influential in my career, but no one in particular. And I think you just have to, you want to leverage those as much as you can. Yeah, absolutely. And what I loved about that story, and I mean, we'll touch probably on this a little bit more later, but, you know, the fact that there was no press and even all these years, well, I mean, it's only been, what, two years since they exited, but still there's that problem. Um, that's what we noticed in the market. You know, that's why we're here. That's why we're sitting with you. Um, but, you know, I think that, you know, that's something that still is needing to be fixed. You know, we're helping, but there needs to be a lot more of people doing what we're doing. Um, and the more of the more that happens and the more companies that grow here in Louisville, you know, I just think it's going to get to a point that we just have to say like, there has to be more digital media. And I keep talking about this with, with friends and with people in the space is, you know, everybody's trying to throw more events or, you know, other, other things in the space where you gather people together in person. But to me, I think the way that you begin to grow the ecosystem more is digital media, you know, news, um, ways for people to consume this content and like stumble across it, not at an event because you know that's not scalable. Events, if you're trying to grow an ecosystem, are not necessarily scalable. You have to do it in a way that people can consume it when they're in their home. Mm-hmm. People can stumble across it. So one of the, my big rants that I've been going on with people is like, in order to grow the ecosystem, like we just have to start doing more digital media to cover those stories because you know it's the word of mouth on that story is not going to be as powerful as you know, a podcast or a news article in, you know, the Courier Journal or something like that. So we just have to keep like a harping on that concept of there's a lack of conversation around those success stories. Yeah, I think so. I think, and um, look, it's not going to, it's not going to happen overnight. Yeah. No, the, the, the issue is, and I grew up in Kentucky, so I can say this, the mindset here is not geared toward technology-based companies, yeah. right? The yeah. mindset is geared toward Healthcare to a large degree. It's geared toward bourbon. Mm-hmm. It's geared toward horse racing. Mm-hmm. It's geared toward you know fast food franchise. It's geared toward <laughs> logistics. Yeah. Right. So those are the things. Basketball. Yeah. Right. I mean that's what people talk about, mm-hmm. and so they don't talk about in a business setting. They don't talk about technology based companies. Yeah. All right. Now, I would say to you that if you if you go to if you went to Seattle. 40 years ago, they didn't talk about it either. Mm-hmm. But guess what? 
Microsoft. Bill Gates came along. Yeah. Microsoft. McCaw Cellular in, from the cellular industry was a huge. They were out of Seattle. That's why T-Mobile's there, by the way. That's mm. why their headquarters is in Seattle. Uh, you've got Amazon now. Yeah. I mean, just, I mean, you think about what they are now as a community. They did, that didn't exist 40 years ago. Yeah. So you just have to, you have to, you do have to start talking about it and you do have to get people a little bit more, vi- more visibility to it. And one of the things I always say to folks is, um, you are, <laughs> you are a technology company. Everyone. I don't care what yeah. business you're in. Yeah. You're using software. You're communicating with these devices or some other type of devices. You're using cloud-based services. In some, in obviously, some businesses are very technology-driven, but literally every company is technology-based. Mm-hmm. And you need people across the board in your organization that not just techno, not just the developers, but marketing and sales and all those other functions. You yeah. need people in those areas as well that are technology savvy. Yeah, that is where the world is going. Yeah, so people need to be paying attention to that and understand. This is where the future is. Let's pay attention to it. Yep. Yep. So along with, you know, developing markets, whether it's conversation or people realizing that, you know, they are a tech company, you know, there's the need for capital to help the industry grow, you know, the ecosystem grow. And we had a you know good conversation yesterday because a lot of our past guests, you know, we always ask, you know, what's the thing that can improve around here? And a lot of them say, well, we need more capital. We need more seed capital or need more angel capital, whatever it might be, a lot of times what comes up is the need for capital. Um, and you, you're the first person to say, no, I don't, I don't buy that. Um, let's, let's talk about that. Um, so why don't you buy that? And you know, what do you have to say to those that, that think we need more capital? Um, I like to, I like to dumb it down. Um, because I think we tend to make things more complicated than they need to be. So when I think about investing, there's really, really just, you know, if you're trying to build an ecosystem there, there's really just three things. There's the the business opportunity, mm-hmm. i.e. The, the idea, the business, you know, market opportunity that you're, that you're pursuing, the talent to be able to scale that business, mm-hmm. and the capital. Yeah. If you think about that's what those are the elements of what you need, right? And you can't and it's not one or the other. It's all of them. If you really want to have something that's successful, you have to have all of those. You've got to have a real market opportunity. You have to have real talent that can that can build it and grow it. And you gotta have access to capital. So they're all relevant. What I would tell you is, you know, you know, my philosophy on the market opportunity is you you're looking for big, growing markets. It can be an established market if there's some type of disruptor mm-hmm. that's going on. And I would argue that the software industry as a whole is, is a good example of that, right? Yeah. You went from on-premise software to cloud-based recurring revenue software. So you had a massive, big market that all of a sudden new entrants could come along yeah. and undercut the old guys because they had a new way to deliver it. And they could deliver the best, newest technology, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a good example of a big, growing market. Yeah. So part of it is when you're thinking about, you know, when you're looking at entrepreneurs and early stage businesses, you have to you have to pay attention to, you know, 
it's okay to have an idea about a business that you want to start, but you got to think about how can that be a big business? Because if it can't be a big business, then you're not going to likely attract capital. To yeah. It, right. Yeah. So got to have a big market, good, good business opportunity. Got to have talent mm-hmm. to lead it. And talent doesn't mean, I said this to you yes, yesterday, yeah. I wanted you to touch talent on does not mean intelligence. Talent means the ability to manage that business to scale. Mm-hmm. And I think people don't, sometimes they think talent, they get defensive. When I say we don't, we don't have an abundance of talent mm-hmm. here to grow those types of businesses. If you go to Silicon Valley, yeah. you've got, A, you've got, you know, think of the three things I mentioned. You've got market opportunity, you've got talent, and you've got a lot of capital. Yeah. Duh. They're, that's why they're successful, right? So for us, you know, on the talent piece, look, recognize it. We don't have the depth mm-hmm. that they do. That doesn't mean you can't be successful. Zermed's a great example. The talent, I would argue the talent at Zermed, and I've worked in, again, I've worked in a lot of big, com- I've worked in big company, big corporate America, the talent at Zermed was very, very good. And I would put them up against, you know, just about anybody in the market. So, yes, you can do it. And, and eventually, if you have the right type of company, you attract the talent. Totally. Right? I yeah. mean, if you've got a good company, people show up. Mm-hmm. Right? They're going to say, hey, I want to work for that company. Right? And then, then go to the capital piece. So, if you've got those first two elements, trust me, the capital will be there. It's going <laughs> to yeah. show up. Yeah. Sequoia. Landed in Louisville and said, "I want to invest in Zermed." Yeah, yeah, okay. they didn't come think here. About, just think about think about that for a second. Look at horses, yeah, right, yeah. They came here to in, they came here to look for That's the company. That's a great example. Yeah. So, so I my view is when you're thinking about all this stuff. Now, I will I will say this: the again, the mentality here is not as geared to, toward risk taking, right? Yeah. yeah. There, people tend to be a little more risk adverse. They're not, it's not the valley where they know they're going to fail on some things. And so failure here tends to be a little bit more of a, oh my gosh, you failed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, that's a, that's the death knell of your career, right? Obviously in Silicon Valley, that's not a, you know, that's, do it again. that's a learning, again. that's a learning, right? So next time now, you know, not to do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you're going to do better the next time. So we we're, we're a little conservative here. So I do think that that's a little bit of the issue. But what I would ultimately say to most entrepreneurs is just understand what you are, right? Are you a lifestyle business or are you a business that actually can be a big business? Yeah. You know, can you be a $100 million revenue business? Can you be a multi-billion dollar business? Or are you just, oh, I can, I can build a $10 million business and have a really good lifestyle and make a lot of money just off of that business. Yeah. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, but recognize what you are and recognize that an investor may not want to invest in that $10 million business because there's not enough upside. Yep. Right. So I just think, I think people have to recognize what they are. And then if you, if you are one of those businesses that looks like a big business, the one thing I would advice I would give to entrepreneurs is be efficient, right? If you're going to take venture capital or any capital, take that dollar and turn it into three or four or five in terms of the revenue of the business. Don't take five million and generate one million of revenue. That's a 
<laughs> it's not a great ratio, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. so the efficiency level that you can take dollars and turn it into multiple dollars, trust me, investors will line up, right? They're going to look at that and go, okay, I get it. You did that to here. Now I can go invest in that business. I'm willing to scale it, right? Yeah. So I just think, I don't think it's a, there is no simple answer on that question. And it is all of those three, but yeah. it's not, I, I just, I don't buy that argument that there's no capital. Well, and you simplified it even more when we spoke earlier, you said chicken or the egg, you know, we don't even have, we don't have one of the, we don't have chicken or the egg yet. You know, and that leads me to, you know, the next question is, you know, with, with Zermed and, you know, in Lexington, they had, you know, um, uh, the big exit. Oh, I, I just slipped my mind. Um, Where? Uh, I'm sorry. Indy? In Lexington. No, oh, in Lexington. Extreme. Lexington. Um, Extreme. You know, so HP. Um, flywheel. Out of those kind of exits, it builds momentum. So people leave that exit. They start their own company. Do you think that there's a sense of that that you feel building here in Kentucky where you know, we've had maybe some exits, whether it's Zermed or some others, you know, people leaving El Toro? or leaving APRIS, you know, do you feel like there's beginning to be a flywheel where these people get great experience in these big companies, whether they exit or not, they leave and do their own thing? Are you starting to see that? Yeah, look, I think there's definitely some examples of it, right? So, yeah. you know, the short answer, the short answer is we just need more. Yeah. All right. But yes, there are very clear examples. So Zermed's been a fantastic one. You know, we sold it for 750 million. And I think I told you they, later. they transacted two years later, just like, six months ago at $2.3 billion, yeah. right? So they transacted again. The company continues to grow. So that's a big success story. There's a lot of good people over there. You know, occasionally those folks are going to roll out and maybe they go start their own thing. That would be great. You got Aperis out here that is a, you know, $100 million plus revenue business, really, really well run, yep. growing at a good clip. Um, so you've got some good, you got some, El Toro is doing, a, is doing a fantastic job in terms of growing its revenue base. So you've got some good examples of companies as far as the ones that are coming out. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, you know, Behavior, you know, Aaron Ganey came out. Yes, he is. Yeah. Everybody told me that. All the, all the great wow. people. <laughs> Evan, all the great people from, uh, are, are from E-Town. Good. You know that, right? Yeah. I'm starting to learn. Yeah, yeah. So, so Aaron was at Humana for, for a number of years, and he basically has the idea of doing virtual reality for behavioral modification in healthcare, right? So helping people with addictions, pain management, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So using VR as a tool to be able to do that from a therapy perspective. So he rolls out at Humana. Here's a guy that's a senior executive at Humana, rolls out and starts his own business. Fantastic, right? I mean, you want to see that happen. I, you're you're seeing it more and more, yeah. Um, but the reality is, you just got to have more, and right? you just need more. You you had you know edited these notes that we you know love to send our guests, and a couple of other momentum things that you had mentioned is you know Microsoft came in town. You've got Endeavor, who we've heard we've heard great things about. Mm -hmm. We'll have to get them on soon. Mm -hmm. um, Healthcare CEO Council. So those are some other momentum yeah. things that you had mentioned. Yeah. So it's 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 happening. Yeah. It's a slow look, process, I, look, slow and, process. And, and, and you, and you know, so, you know, we maybe we can talk about popular ventures, but, um, yeah, the, the, uh, you know, you know, popular ventures, you know, I, we raised $22 million to invest in software technology companies, middle part of the country, early growth stage. Right. Mm -hmm. So not, 
trying not to put all of our, put most of our capital work once the company's already achieved some some success and, and a sense of what their business looks like. Um, so, and that kind of fits with my investment philosophy and kind of how I how I want to go go about that. So, um, you got Poplar Ventures, you've got um, Access. You know, Access Ventures is is basically just announced a fifteen million dollar fund to invest in some earlier stage stuff. Um, you've got Endeavor that's sitting there as a kind of a mentor relationship, and I've been a I've been a mentor with Endeavor for the last five years. Andy had great things to say from Scuvault. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and they they their network is is real. They they have access to some of the most sophisticated folks, you know, both on the investment side and on the you know, industry side mm -hmm. around the world, not just, not just in the U S but around the world. So it's a fantastic network. Uh, so you've got that here that that's leading, you know, that's helping. Um, I, you know, look, there's, there's lots of good stuff going on. Again, I think this Microsoft AI thing, if, if we can get something really generating out of that, because the one thing that I see in a lot of other cities, if we're talking about trying to grow the ecosystem here, one thing I do see in a lot of other cities is typically there is a educational leader in that market that is driving technology or driving a lot of innovation. Yeah. Right. Columbus, Ohio State, you know, Indy, you know, you can go to Purdue even. Right. So there's, you can go to Atlanta, you know, there's every, all those markets have a university that's driving innovation. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I'm very excited about this whole Microsoft thing. Proof's in the pudding. But yeah. I'm excited about it because I do believe that AI, artificial intelligence, is kind of the next layer of technology on top of software and other things that is going to, to you know, result in a tremendous amount of innovation and opportunity. Yeah. And, I, and I'm very excited to see UofL leaning into that and I hope that that you know turns into something very significant. Yeah. I've been harping on AI for a while. You know, I just I just feel yeah. like I mean, we're in Kentucky, you so think people pe don't. You think people understand what? That's AI my thing. Is? I'm harping on. No way. Okay. People are not talking about it well, enough. What do you think AI is? I mean, AI is essentially you know building machines that can replicate you know actions of what we do as humans. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's it. That's I, it. See, That's I, the definition. I, I think sometimes people get. Uh, <laughs> Get overwhelmed, yeah. Like, oh my gosh, you know, it's technology. It's well, gonna what? take over. That's that's it. Yeah, yeah. That's all you're I doing. think people, you know, we need more conversation around it because if we don't, it's gonna be here and we won't be prepared. And you know, that's why my, that was one of big that was one of Microsoft's big thesis for coming is you know Louisville is heavy industry, heavy uh, manufacturing. You know, these roles in in the economy that can be disrupted by you know artificial intelligence. Um, and one of the things that just bothers me. You know, just going through UK and just looking at the education system, looking at, you know, just the general economy and, and society, we don't talk about it enough. It's not on the news. It's not, you know, unless you're in the tech space, you hear about it a lot. But if you're outside of that, I think we have to start talking about it more because it's going to lead to a humanity. It's going to lead to like real big, not necessarily problems, but shifts in the way that we have to, you know, function as humans. Um, and I just don't think people are thinking about it in the right way or even thinking about it at all. Cause again, I, I just don't want the data come when, you know, it, it's already everywhere. People don't realize that Spotify, like every app we use is, has it Spotify. Yeah. So like, yeah. but there'll be a time when businesses 
a lot of the processes are just run by artificial intelligence and people are going to be looking around like, you know, where do I get a job? Like, well, there's going to be more jobs created, but at the same time, like there's going to be a huge shift. Like, I don't think we're ready. I don't think there's enough conversation. That's why I look at it. But yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic. I generally, I, I just, I'm never, I'm not, I'm never going to be one of these folks that says, Oh gosh, you know, fall, you know, sky is falling. Yeah. And I, I, I get it. I understand people say, oh, they're worried about the jobs. The reality is, I, I think humans are pretty adaptable. Yeah. And, you know, yes, there's work to be done. And yes, we need to create some, the environment for people to be able to develop the right skills. But, you know, look, it's like with this coronavirus. <laughs> you know, I, I, I feel fundamentally optimistic that we will figure it out. Yeah. I don't look at that and go, gosh, the world's coming to an end, right? Yeah. So just anytime people, <laughs> you know, when they get negative or they get, you know, yeah. I really do think that, you know, the human race has proven time and time again that they have ingenuity and the ability to put their mind to it with the creativity that they need to, to yeah. be able to solve the world's problems. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that things bad things will happen i'm not necessarily being pessimistic but it's just happening so fast and i don't see the education happening for people to you know you said we're, we're adaptable but that's because we can learn but it's happening so fast that i just feel like it's going to happen and then we're going to sit here and have to catch up educational wise yeah that's kind of what i'm afraid of yeah. But I think we'll, well do it. I think we'll be start, able to do it. Yeah. So if you're going to get me, I, I got to be careful to get, I don't want to get too close to politics, but, yeah. but you know, if you think about schools, like just K through 12, yeah, we're, we're, we're horrible about computer, yeah, computer science, technology in general. Yeah. And we're horrible on financial literacy. Oh, yeah. Oh, I harped it, on financial literacy to my dad for about an hour on the phone. We went to a talk by a, was it Forbes Steve, Forbes? Steve Forbes. And he was talking about all this stuff. It was pretty much anti, anti Bernie and the way this, the younger generation tends to lean on towards politics. <laughs> and I was like, I don't understand how anyone can feel this way. I don't want to get too political here. I probably am already, but <laughs> financial literacy is kind of what it comes down to in my head is understanding the how way money works. What, what, you know, money is comes from creating value. And yes. I just don't think people realize that. No. They yeah. Don't. So, yeah, and again, I'll get. I'm gonna. I'm gonna be at risk of getting political, but, <laughs> but, I will say this: the. I do not understand, and again, I'm an old person now, so I don't understand this. Uh, um, this view that business is evil. Yes, I do oh, not man. understand. <sighs> and and here's hours. why. Here's, and and it, and the what I would say to people is. If you do, you let's use Jeff Bezos yes. as, as a perfect as a perfect <laughs> as a perfect example. Right? People rip <laughs> so on him. Here he is. Yeah. This is a guy that started a business and has continued to evolve, continued to innovate, continued to do to you know to drive products and services to the market. And people would argue, I think, that the services that he's delivering are pretty valuable. Right. So Amazon Prime is the simplest example. Yes. 20 years ago, 10 years ago, I don't know, 
Well, could you imagine that you could actually, let me go back. Let's go back 30 years because this didn't exist mm -hmm. 30 years ago. Imagine that you could pick this up, scroll through something that gives you all the data in the world and you could order a product and it shows up on your doorstep within hours or the next day at, at worst. Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. That happened in the last 30 years. And guess what? He's delivering value. You're paying for it. Yeah, you're a if consumer. You don't, if you don't like it, don't, don't pay it. for it. But that's the thing. <laughs> People can't go without it and they don't realize it. That's why, yeah. And, and, but but the, the part that, that drives me absolutely nuts is that they would, and here would be the argument back. Well, he makes too much money, right? Yeah. And I would argue, well, if you're willing to pay for it and he's delivering you value, then it's not too much money. Yeah. Yeah. You're getting value from it. Yep. And so at what point, who decides that magically, oh, that's enough. Yeah. You know, you don't get any more. I mean, who magically oh, decides man, I that? Love this. It, it, yeah. it, I, I, I just, I've been so upset about this recently. I'm glad you, I'm glad somebody else was yeah. able to say that that has way more, you know, experience and reputation than I do. Cause I think that people just need to hear that. It's like, I don't like, well, another thing is like, it's just about entrepreneurs. It's like people, when you rip on somebody that has value like that, you're ultimately ripping on the idea of being an entrepreneur. Like, they're taking huge risks to do that in the first place. And the risk follows, you know, reward follows that risk. It's like Absolutely. Jeff Bezos is the, is the best example. People like Elon Musk, they're the world's richest people because they're taking the world's biggest risks. And then out of that, they're able to intelligently build value for the world, mm -hmm. whether it's Amazon Prime, you know, AWS, which is one of the biggest services ever created that has led to so many other innovations, yeah. you know, rockets, going to space and coming back and landing the size of a skyscraper, those people should be the world's richest people and they should be worth billions of dollars. There's no, I don't know why you'd ever argue against that. That's yeah. my, yeah. And, and, and I think that, I think that people, listen, I have tremendous, um, I, I value entrepreneurs greatly because yeah. I, I don't, in, unless you've done it, unless you've tried to start a business and, and, and to deal with the the minutia of trying to you know build your business, raise capital, hire people, you know, go get, without pay get, for get, a period of time, get people motivated. Unless you've done that, you just have no idea how yeah. hard that is to do. Yeah. And guess what? That's where the jobs come from, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like if you don't have people that do that, you don't have jobs. Jeff Bezos employs about eight hundred thousand people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, Look, I, I, all right, we can end that. But uh, one of the big learnings that, you know, we're obviously, we want to give the guests on this episode is we've got one of Kentucky's prime uh, venture capitalists here. And I think a lot of people that are in the tech space, one of their, you know, things that they dream about is being a venture capitalist. For sure. Especially for me. It's like you want to start a company and you eventually want to make enough money that you can help other people start companies and be successful. Um, so when you talk about where you started, you know, you, you had the ability to move from Nextel, come here and get involved with Crystalis. Just talk about, you know, that journey and where you might give people advice to just get started or begin working their way towards that path. Like what are some yeah. things that you remember yeah. in your career that said, 
that allowed you to do that? Well, other than capital, because that's an obvious one. It's um, well. First thing I would say is it's it's not as glamorous as everybody thinks it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's great. I mean, one of the things I love about it, and I learned I learned this really early on. I, I mean, if, if you're if you're naturally curious, intellectually curious, and you see lots of different interesting businesses, it's fascinating, right? Yeah. It's like you get to you get to kind of dig in on businesses, you get to meet a lot of interesting people. So it's it's it is fantastic from that perspective, but it's a lot of work, yeah, right. And what people don't realize is when you talk about doing venture investing, it's you're it's a long game, right? You invest in companies. Yeah. There's a lot of risk, right? Which weighs on you, right? So, you know, we, I don't look at, you know, from my perspective, I'm not a guy that likes to lose. So when I'm investing in a company, I really, really don't want to lose my investment. Yeah. I want that company to be successful. So I take it personally if it's not doing well. So, you know, there, there's a, there's, there's risk. It's a long cycle. Um, and there's a lot of hard work. And you got to you got to really help that. So so the first thing I would say is it is it is great if you like the intellectual curiosity and, and all that type of stuff. But it's a lot of work. So just be aware of that. Second thing I would say is the traditional paths for you know getting into venture capital are you're either starting early as an associate and then working your way up or you go out and build your own business or you become an entrepreneur or you become part of an entrepreneurial team and you have a successful exit or two or three or four or whatever the number is. And then you, because you have so much experience building and growing companies, you're now in a very good position to flip onto the other side and say, okay, I want to go invest in those, invest in companies. And I have the experience to be able to help those, Mm -hmm. those entrepreneurs. Like Reed Hoffman would be a prime example. Yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of them. There's, yeah. Yeah. That's I one mean, of the There's a bunch of them. Yeah. And, and they tend to be, you know, the, the really, the good executives, entrepreneurial executives tend to be pretty good VCs. Because they can read and see a good entrepreneur because they are one. Yeah. 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 I mean, they, 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 they can recognize that. So yeah. I, look, I, you can go one of those two ways. My general advice, because the first route is so hard, right? It's like a needle in a haystack to, to jump into that. My my general my general bias, and again, there's always exceptions, and there's all you know, people can, you know, you can land in the right place at the right time. But my general advice is always, go get some experience. Yeah. Go go build something. Go be part of a team, and you don't even have to be the founder. Just if you're in a growing company, you know, like look, Nextel. I wasn't the founder of Nextel. I happened to get there at I would what I would call an opportune time, which was. You know, I think I was at the headquarters. I might have been employee ten, somewhere in the somewhere in the ten to fifteen range. Yeah. Um, pretty early on at the corporate office, and you know that you know grew into you know what it did. So that experience, even though I wasn't the founder, I was part of the senior team pretty much my whole career, and that gave me visibility to a lot of things that I've seen that informs how I think about companies and how I try to help companies today, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at Poplar Ventures. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to bring that experience to bear when I go invest in a company and give them the benefit of that yeah. and help them. Yeah, that's great. And I just noticed this. It's amazing. 
uh, I'd ask you a question at one of these high level topics and you'd hit every bullet point that we had here. So you obviously prepared very well. I just, I just noticed that you hit like perfectly. Those I things. haven't even looked at my notes. I know. That's what I'm amazed by. I mean, look, <laughs> it's like you got it all memorized. What, what, ha- before we get to the last question, which is our classical last question, uh, have we not touched on anything you wanted to talk about today? Well, I guess what I would say, uh, just, you know, give you the commercial on popular ventures. So, yes, do you it. know, the, the, yeah. you know, the reason that I ultimately got to the point where I said, I'm going to go raise my own fund was I'd had the, you know, I had kind of evolved into focusing on software technology companies. Um, I'd had some success. The Zermed transaction occurs and it, that's kind of, you know, now I'm at a point where I'm like, okay, I could just keep doing that. I could just keep investing, you know, when I find the right types of companies, do it on a one-off basis, bring in a few people. I had been bringing in people into my investments occasionally. I could keep doing that or I could go raise a fund. And in the past, every time I thought about raising a fund, I, I didn't really want to do it because I thought it was a little bit too constraining. You know, if you raise a fund, it's like, okay, I'm investing at this stage, this geography, this type of company, you're kind of boxed in. But the reality was, I went, you know, as I went through that process, I realized, look, I'm investing in software technology, recurring revenue based companies. That's what I, that's what I know. I'm 55. (laughs) I'm not changing at this point. That's kind of what I know. So let's go invest in that. Um, I'm here in Kentucky. I'm not going anywhere. I think the middle part of the country is prime for finding and developing technology-based companies. And the reason I say that is that, again, if you go back 30 years, I didn't have the networks. I didn't have cloud-based services. I didn't have all the things, the tools that are, that were, that, that are now available for anybody to develop a technology-based service. Yeah. You can leverage what everybody else is doing. That's the view. You got APIs into just about everything, right? So the, 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 the landscape is set up that you can do it anywhere. Remote work is growing fast. Re- remote work is a, and that is, that's a, you know, I'm not a, I cannot, uh, I cannot predict the future. Yeah. Right. But what I do, what I say is I try to recognize it when I see it. Mm-hmm. And remote work is a perfect example of that. You can see that that's going to continue to occur, coronavirus or, or not. You can see that that is kind of the future of how things are going to get done. And it makes perfect sense. If people can be, as long as people can be productive, productive yeah. then it makes perfect sense that you don't have to have everybody in the same room mm-hmm. all the time. So, you know, you look at something like remote work, that's a big area. And you want to say, hey, let's find companies again, back to that slipstream, get in the slipstream, right? And find big growth opportunities, find the right companies that get in that. So ultimately I said, all right, I'm going to go raise I'm going to go raise a fund because I know I want to do software technology. I know I want to do it in middle America. I know that there's opportunity there. And when I went about putting it together, I said, I'm going to go to, uh, I'm not going to pension funds, at least initially, because I said, look, I just want to, you know, somewhere in the 20, $25 million range. I want enough capital that I can go do enough transactions. uh, But I don't want to get so big that, you know, that I don't, you know, that I, that it turns into something bigger than I want it to be. I just want enough capital to be able to go do what I've been doing. Yeah. Uh, because I feel like I've been doing a pretty good job at it. I went to high net worth individuals and all of whom are successful 
people in a variety of different industries. And I love that. I've got a, I've got a network of 30 plus limited partners that have tremendous experience. And so much so that I, when, I, when I was putting the fund together, I said, I have an idea. I want to bring some of those, especially the ones that have software technology experience, I want to bring them on what I'm going to call as an investment advisory partner. Okay, so these are folks that have real direct experience in technology and software that can help me, A, evaluate companies potentially, but then also help those companies, right? So if you ask what's my value add, my value add for Poplar is you get me. <laughs> yeah. Some people might say that's a negative, but, <laughs> but in this case, you get me. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know, when you... You send me an email, I'm responding. You send me a text, I'm responding. You call me, I'm responding. So that is the one thing. I've, I've learned that from people through my career too. Fast response. Mm -hmm. It is a, so annoying when somebody get, tries to get to you, especially somebody you know, yeah. and you don't respond. Mm -hmm. So if I, could tell, if I could tell young people one thing, respond, right? Just, does it, just quick, yeah. get back, yeah. right? It's it's it it's it's almost disrespectful when you don't do what's, it. What's uh what's long? What do you consider real quick just to put a number on it? it, it, it and just, you kinda like what what crosses the border of being too long? Look, I try I try uh and again you can't always do it because you got stuff going on and you got you know, you know, it may take I literally try to respond uh within the day. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it you know, you don't have to respond right away, but yeah, right. but get Get back to folks. You know, it's 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 common courtesy. I hundred percent agree with you. Yeah. So so the, what I did is I, I, I out of that group of limited partners, I put together a group of investment advisory partners, and these are folks like Mike Davis, the CEO of Apris, who basically has been with that company from the beginning, and and it's turned that into a, a fantastic company here in Louisville. Uh, Chris Joseph, who's the CEO of Enablon, another hundred million dollar plus SaaS business. He's based out of Chicago. Got to know him back in my first Chicago days. Um, from, on, on the, from the Zermad side, Jim Lacey, who is the former CFO. He's now the president uh, and COO at Collective Medical out in Salt Lake City. But he was the CFO at Zermad, very, you know, very involved in all the growth of that business and the strategy side. Uh, Chris Schremser, who's the CTO over at Zermad, now Waystar. Uh, he helps me from a technology perspective. In turn, you know, he's running the whole technology organization in a SaaS company. I've got um, I've got a couple folks here locally um, that are, um, you know, Vic Chada, Greg Langdon. These are guys that I would argue around here are probably as clued in as in, and and as um, intelligent about early stage businesses in terms of advising them and mentoring them and helping them as anybody in the state, right? So they're involved. And then I've got a gentleman by the name of Doug Smith, also from E-Town, who was maybe a year behind me in high school, who's been working at Microsoft for 25 years. He runs cloud services for North America for Microsoft. So these are people that I have that are part of my team, as part of my investor base, and that's what I try to bring to bear to my companies. I try to you know, give them my experience in terms of what I've learned over the years. I try to obviously help them in, you know, their, their individual companies, uh, you know, help them with talent attraction, um, certainly help them with strategically. If you get to the corporate development side, I know that side pretty well. Um, 
but then bringing all these other folks to bear. And I think that that, you know, if you, if, at the end of the day, it is about, you know, trying to figure out a way to help these companies. You yeah. know, I'm not, I, again, I'm not a futurist. I don't think I know better than anybody else. I just try to identify what I think is a, are unique opportunities and then help those businesses grow and be successful. Yeah, that's great. Glad you plugged that. Um, so last question. We ask everybody this. Forward-looking statement. Where do you see Louisville <laughs> being in the next few years? It's pressure, high-pressure question, uh, but in your mind, what do you see happening here? You probably put several pieces of it while you've been talking together, but let's. what's the one or two sentence for Maybe short paragraph of where you see this going. Yeah, look, I, I'm um, short answer is I have no idea, uh, <laughs> but what I would say is that we have good momentum. You know, we talked about earlier some of the different elements that are starting to kind of fall into place, um, and there is no magic bullet. It is basically going to come down to just doing more and 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 just continuing to iterate there is there's no just a lot of hard work i think is what's going to ultimately happen that's a good realistic realistic yeah. answer I, I don't again i don't again i don't have the, i don't have the magic yeah. magic answer there I, I really do it is just a matter of look more is better so more capital i look i'm i, I don't need to be the only source of capital i mean yeah. i you know if <laughs> you raised I raised $22 million and that's one of the larger venture funds in the state of Kentucky. Right. Yeah. Which is ridiculous, but, <laughs> but it is yeah. so, but guess what? Access comes along. They put some capital to work. I hope there's more. I hope there's more folks that bring capital to bear. Right. And I hope that there's more companies that I hope that companies merge, you know, come out of Zormad Waystar or APRIS or you know, executives or yeah. El Toro executives come out of there, they form companies and then they start growing. And that's how it happens. You just have to, it's like, it's one company at a time and just, just go after it. 